Welcome to Backlogs, an arts management podcast series where we delve into the histories and evolving practice of arts management in Singapore. The world of arts management is a vast and wide-ranging one, and this podcast series is a humble attempt at beginning to map this world and chart its growth. This pilot series focuses on the management of the theatre and literary art worlds, a process that brings text to the stage or page. It also focuses on the time period of the 1980s to 1995, an exciting time for the local arts ecosystem, because of the crucial work of the arts managers in the increasing professionalization of the arts and cultural industries. Head to our website at backlogs.sg. That's B-A-C-K-L-O-G-U-E-S dot S-G for more information and resources. The mid-1980s saw the proliferation of local theatre companies such as Act 3 in 1984, High Theatre in 1986, Asian Theatre Research Circus or ATRC in 1987 and Theatre Ekamatra in 1988. Now what was notable about the 80s was that it was a time of visionaries who shaped what arts management would look like in the years to come. One of the most forward-thinking and prominent of Singapore's theatre companies was TheatreWorks, now known as T-Works. It was founded in 1985 by an ensemble of artists, including actor and director Lim Kay Tong, designer Justin Hill, and with Lim Xiao Chong taking on the company's artistic direction. They would come to be known for their bold and cutting-edge programming, their concept of a total theatre experience, and their dedication to the development of local Singaporean works, with programmes such as the Retrospective of Singaporean Plays, the Writers' Lab, and the 24-hour playwriting competition. Please do note that in this podcast, we will refer to the company as TheatreWorks to situate it in the context of the 1980s and the 1990s that this podcast focuses on. So today on Backlogs, we are fortunate to have one of the early members of the company, TheatreWorks, Lucilla Teo, to share her experiences working with the company from 1986 to 1997, where she wore multiple hats over the years, from stage managing, to front of house, to production management, and publicity. Welcome, Lucilla. Hi. <laughs> so good to have you. I remember seeing you Theatre on the Hill, seeing you in the office of TheatreWorks in uh, the early 90s. We're very glad that today you're able to come here and share some of your experiences of what the beginning looked like. But perhaps just before we go into the story of TheatreWorks, tell us how you began in theatre as an arts manager of sorts. You know, when... I was at university, I was in the arts faculty, and we were all always doing a little production here and a little production there. And one of my linguistics lecturer got me very busy doing lunchtime things, etc. One day I was approached by Mr. Lampin Fu from Shell, and he was interested in starting a theatre company, well, a small little one for the staff of Shell because he wanted to encourage their dramatic abilities and interests. And they were at that time also doing lunchtime performances. So I thought, wow, that's something very interesting because at that time we were always looking for a platform mm -hmm. to do our work, right? So, hey, here's someone who's giving me a platform, why not? Outside of the university. Outside of the university, right? And I was about to graduate 
and go into teaching. So anyway, I said, sure, why not? Mm-hmm. So I met this group and it was quite a diverse batch. As in you get the company secretary, you've got someone from finance, you've got someone from Bukom, you know, so they were all very different backgrounds, but they all came together because they loved theatre. Mm. After about two years, we even actually travelled up to KL wow. to do a performance for Shell in KL. Mm. And that's actually the first time where I met the theatre doyen, Christian Jit. Right. He came to watch. And I was like, oh, he's here. <laughs> but anyway, um, Mr. Lam was also very good at encouraging young talent. So he at that time heard of this young director called Ong King Sin, who was then president of Vasti Playhouse. In NUS. So in NUS. So King Sin was in his last year of law school. Mm -hmm. So he was invited to direct some plays for the Shell Players. And King Sin just asked, can I have someone to support me who knows theatre if I'm working with amateurs? So I was asked, would I like to help King Sin as his stage production stage manager? So I said, okay, why not? Because in those days, we kind of helped each other and we all wanted uh, to just do good theatre. Then, of course, King Sen gradually got involved with Theatre Works right. because Xiao Chong had invited him to be part of the early ensemble. Because in those days, Xiao Chong's idea was that you do maybe two productions front of house and you do a few productions backstage, etc. So everyone did a bit of everything. Ah, you kind of rotate. Yeah, you kind of rotate. So people like Nora Samosa, Christine Lim, Lim Kesiu, etc. Nyo Sui Lin. Uh, Nyo Sui Lin. But I think Nyo Sui Lin was not part of the early ensemble. I see. But anyway, there was this small group of people, so they would do all this. Mm-hmm. So at that time, after we did the Shell production, King Sen said, why don't you come and help me for this other Theatre Works production called Dreamkeepers. It's a double bill. So I said, okay, why not? You know? <laughs> um, because at that time, although we say professional theatre or moving towards professional theatre, most of us had a day job to pay the bills. Right. And we came for rehearsals at night. And in those days, ayo, it was this little bungalow house in Woodleigh Park. And we would sweat buckets because... No air conditioning. No air conditioning. And it's just this long, it was not a broad house, so it was longish. We normally played in Drama Centre, the old Drama Centre on Fort Canning Hill. So we roughly could accommodate the stage dimensions within the living and the dining room. So it was very funny. Mm -hmm. And to get back on stage, we have to run round the building through the kitchen and the toilet to come back from the left side of the stage to the right side of the stage. Anyway, so that was how it was. That's the fun part, right? Yes. And if it starts raining, then you just get wet. <laughs> yes. And so immediately after that, I got involved. So Tio Sweeling at that time was managing, mm-hmm. was the administrator. So she said, oh, you know, we've got this thing for Arts Festival called Beauty World. Do you want to do it? Mm. So I said, what's the thing about? So she said, oh, it's a musical with Dick Lee and Michael Chiang and all that. So I said, oh, really? How interesting. Yes, I would like to do that. (laughs) So it was for the Arts Festival. And again, it sounds very grand now, but in those days, 
we went crazy because the budget was small and we were trying and we were like a cast of a million people and we were trying to put them in costumes and we had singing rehearsals, acting rehearsals, dancing, dancing rehearsals. rehearsals. And at the same time, the play was still being written. Right. So I remembered wanting to find out who is the father of Ivy Chan Po Chu. <laughs> and I was asked to go and pick up the script from Dick's office. No, sorry, Michael Chang's office. And so I got the script. I got back to the theatre's office. And I had a tummy ache. So I dashed into the loo and I was reading the script in the loo. And I was like, ha, her father is... Then dot, I was dot, like, dot. I, then there was this scream in the toilet. Ah! I now know the father of Ivy Chan Pochu. <laughs> so it was quite funny. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. So mm. you were the first to know? I think Michael and Dick had talked about it, so they knew. Right. But I think within the company, yeah, I was the first to know because, yeah. And it was fun because we were, in a way, creating as we went along because Kingston would give feedback to Michael and Dick. Like, I think we need a song here. I think we need something here. And so it was a very exciting creative period. And even for me, working as a production stage manager, it was very exciting because, for example, Justin Hill will tell me his vision for the set. Then I would have to think, okay. So we got the carpenters to build the round tables for the cabaret. Then I got volunteers to come in and we painted zebra prints. Mm. And then I bought cheap animal print fabric and we covered chairs that people had thrown away to be the chairs for the cabaret. Because we sort of thought that it would be that sort of cabaret with leopard prints <laughs> and things like that. So, so you're saying that in addition to being the stage manager, you had to dress the set. You had to exercise a bit of creativity to paint <laughs> and to actually wrap over the furniture with fabric. Yeah, anything to help bring the budget down and to also make it as real as possible. So like, for example, because it was a cabaret, we needed bottles of alcohol or something like alcohol. So I actually went and asked around and... A certain eatery, which I shall not name, but they were very nice. They said, come after a weekend. We have so many bottles after the weekend, empty bottles. You can take all you want. Mm. And true enough, after the weekend, they had bottles of whiskey, bottles of all sorts of things. So I just filled them with tea because tea looks like whiskey. Mm -hmm. And then we just put it all on the... Uh, shelves of the bar. Wow. You know, so it's things like that. You yeah. know, that was fun. You yeah. Know? You, you had a full-time job at that point in time. Yes, I already. Did. You were teaching, am I correct? Yes. In a junior college. In a junior college. So what was your average working day like? I would teach from 7.30 to about maybe three or four sometimes. And uh, on my short days, I would finish by two. Then I'll have a short period. Maybe I'll be marking and doing my prep for the next day. And then I'll go in for rehearsals. And we would rehearse from 7 till sometimes midnight, sometimes 1 or 2 in the morning. Then I go home and sleep. And then my whole day starts again. And then you wake up at 6 and then, yeah, wah, again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But somehow you love it and it doesn't matter. You don't feel the tiredness. Mm -hmm. But also to be fair... Because I was a teacher, I worked with my teaching schedule. Mm -hmm. I tried to choose productions that would, would complement it, I suppose. Yes, so yeah. that if, say, arts festival, it's always in June. So that's my school holidays. So I was freer or, or something that was end of the year, December, then I was freer too. Mm. Mm. I, I never compromised my 
work yeah. to do the play. I think it sounds like a lot of passion both ways. Yeah. I have a quote here that you gave in TheatreWorks News Volume Number 1 of 1989. You said, There is never time to rest. When a successful run has been completed, the next one is just round the corner. There are rehearsals to schedule, costumes to organise, photo shoots to conceptualise, advertisement space to sell, meetings to coordinate. Work is never boring and tasks vary with each production. Ah, yes. <laughs> Do you still feel like that? Well, I'm no longer doing things like that, but I but it definitely is true because there is a season, right? So when you have a season, you know you've got five or six plays or sometimes three or four plays a year or sometimes it's even a big thing like Theatre Carnival on a Hill where it's maybe 15 to 20 plays and dances and, and installations and things happening at the same time. But you also have to think ahead, so the, what's after that? I've got another play coming up. So I also need to confirm actors for that. Mm. I need to start thinking about conceptualizing the photo shoot, the what should the look be and things like that. And also discussing with the director, what do you want? Mm. How do you want it to look? But I think that quote came around the time when I was doing a lot more work with Theatre Works and also in terms of doing forward planning. So like, mm. okay, if I'm stage managing this one, maybe for the next one, I'm doing front of house. But front of house does not mean I just sell the tickets, but it also means I help with the foyer exhibition. I may help with school programs because sometimes, like say, Descendants of the Emerald Eunuch, we wanted kids from school to enjoy it, even mm. though it's, it looked and sounds like a very esoteric production. Mm -hmm. So it's all about how you prepare, perhaps because of the fact that I was a teacher. What worked for me, I think, were when we were, I was able to bring this together. And I think that time Michelle asked me, because she was then general manager, mm -hmm. and she said, do you think you could create something for the schools? So I said for a play like this, maybe the most is the pre-show uh, talk and the post-show talk or even interval talk. So she said, okay. So it was very interesting because we had a primary school come. And so the pre-show, I sh explained the basic plot to the kids with the teachers present. And they saw the show and during the interval, the kids asked me questions. And at the end, the teacher said, can I ask a question? And I said, sure, of course. And the teacher said, there's this red cloth that comes down. What is the significance of that? And then this is one thing I've learned. So I looked at the kids. So what do you all think? And one boy looked at his teacher and said, Madam, it's blood. Ah, you know, the blood coming down. And I was like, yes, thank you, Lord. <laughs> this kid got it at least at some level. So for me, that was a beautiful moment because I do believe theatre is for everyone. I do believe that even the young can get it, whatever it is. Although I know there are certain age-appropriate uh, performances and things like that. But I think it is good for kids to be exposed to theatre as quickly as possible and for theatre to engage them and get them excited. 
So that for me was a moment where I went, oh, yes, this is worth it because they are our future generation. They are our future audience. So we need to get them in. Being a teacher, I do believe that theatre is an educational value, of course. Mm. But I also do believe that even what is considered esoteric work, we all find our own ins into mm. that and it depends on what level you are at. So yeah. a young kid, maybe it's a bit more literal. Mm -hmm. But of course, for us who are adults, we may take it at a more metaphorical or surreal level, you know. Mm. So, yeah, it just depends. Interesting. So, how it, it really unleashes the, the creativity and the, the kids can recognise it. Yes. Well, we'll talk a little bit more in depth about this whole idea of the total theatre. Yeah, of course. Sure. And uh, also, who were these other people who were working with you so that you could do so many things and plan the season? Because, of course, Theatre Works was one of the first companies to think of productions in terms of seasons, right? And obviously, when it came to the development of grant schemes and things like that, this would be very important because you wouldn't have to deliver a season mm. in order to qualify for grants. Yes. So that kind of will bring us into the whole professionalizing of the ecosystem. We said earlier on that we wanted to talk about theatre's vision of a professional theatre ecosystem. Mm. So I'm going to start by just listing a couple of productions in the early years, perhaps leading up to Beauty World. So in 1985, Be My Sushi Tonight was the first mm. recorded professional show. Played 25th to 28th April at 1985 at the World Trade Centre Auditorium. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It travelled to Malaysia for the first Kuala Lumpur Arts Festival, That's directed right. by Lim Xiao Chong. And so interesting, collaterals done by Goe King. Yes. Yeah. Part of Backlogs, we're also looking at the literary scene. So that's a really nice piece of history for us to see how they all come together. Well, Goe King, apart from eventually becoming the publisher of Landmark Books, he was a company member at that mm, time. Mm. Mm. Yep, yep. And his wife, Anita Farm. Yes. Yeah. But that was much later. That was much later. Okay. <laughs> well, for the purposes of this particular pilot series, you're right, yeah. we're just looking at the 80s to, yeah. to the mid-1990s. Mm. There's another play, Function, which I've definitely done some research about it. This was uh, 12 to 15 December 1985, also directed by Lim Xiao Chong. Mm -hmm. And the venue was the Drama Centre. Yeah. Like what you said, right? Mm -hmm. This was a playground for Theatre Works. You all did Rashomon, 1986. Yes. Well, this was before you joined. The director, But I did see the oh, production. You did see the yeah. production. Yeah. Anything that you recall from there? Because I'm looking, interestingly, the directors are Xiao Chong and the late William Tio. Yes. And that's why William, his visuals are fantastic. And so I remembered the gorgeous costumes, the colours of that, because it was a lot of reds and golds and all that. Uh, yeah. And Christine Lim was playing the woman who was sexually assaulted in the play. Mm -hmm. And I remember, and she's on the ground and there are all these lovely brown leaves around her. And of course, it's an awful act that was happening to her, but it was done so beautifully. And that's William Teo for you. I was there at his funeral and when he passed away and Sweeling, his sister, told me he only wanted white flowers and he got it. So the whole funeral parlour was filled with white flowers. Beautiful. Sweeling is Tio Sweeling and she was the first administrator for Theatre yes. Works. Again, it's quite interesting to see how the network and the pool uh, of early theatre artists, th there's that interconnectedness, you know, yes. they are family members, they are friends from university and things mm. like that. Well, she later went on to work for the film festival as well. 
That's right. There's also a very uh, pivotal moment in 1984 for the Singapore Festival of the Arts where Xiao Chong actually directed Bumboat for that edition. Yes. It was commissioned as a, a festival contribution, as yes. a deliberate international local collaboration. Yes. Right? It was an English language musical directed by the American timer and Singaporean, yeah. Xiao Chong, of course. Yes. And that presented vignettes of uh, contemporary Singaporean life in a series of stories written by a group of writers. Those included Michael Chiang of Beauty yes. World fame, yeah, yes. Catherine Lim, of course novelist Jacinta yes yeah Dick Lee was composer and musical director as well yes and then as the history books would not show it Jacinta actually was the one who introduced Xiao Chong to Ketong and they registered theatre works together yes because Jacinta worked in Straits Times and Ketong was working in Straits Times. And Jacinta, of course, went on to have a really long history with Theatre Works. I think she she acted with Theatre Works for eight straight years from Beauty World in yes. 1988. Yes. Yeah. In 1985, that was the establishment of Theatre Works. The artistic director was Xiao Chong. Yes. Acting and directing, Ketong oversaw that. Set design, Justin. Mm. Founding members of Theatre Works included Alex Abishankanathan, that's Jacinta's father. Yes. Yeah, Goet King, as you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Jacinta herself, Janina Bas, mm -hmm. Kalyani Kausikan, mm -hmm. who's also a teacher. Retired now. <laughs> Retired now. Yeah. Kim Ramakrishnan. Yes. Lina Bandara. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Michael Chiang mm -hmm. and Sylvia Tan. Yes. Yeah. Who married Ketong. <laughs> Correct. So we're starting to see the, the whole interconnectedness of the theatre world, mm. so to speak. Now, it's enlightening to read that some of the very forward-thinking passages from TheatreWorks' early program booklets actually shed some light on what the situation was back then. Okay, for example, in the program booklet for Not Afraid to Remember, mm -hmm. uh, that was 1986, back then TheatreWorks was one year old mm. and it stated, we're a group trying to create an environment for professional theatre in Singapore. Mm -hmm. We hope professional theatre would be a reality someday. Mm -hmm. And this is our own small step towards that day. Mm -hmm. So, what to the people back then, these pioneers, was professional theatre? Was it quitting their day jobs? Was that the dream? I think it's a bit of... Okay, there is one aspect of that. Being able to make your living from theatre. Not making that sort of Hollywood tons of money type thing, but to be at least able to pay the bills. But in addition to that... It was to produce quality theatre, theatre that we could be proud of, which could go to the Edinburgh Festival, which could go travel overseas and take its place on the international stage. So it was about professionalism all round, mm -hmm. whether it's in terms of acting, in terms of writing, in terms of backstage, that means the lighting, the sound, the stage design, all these things were important. So I think... In all cases, although we were not fully professional as in we made our money from theatre, I think we all had this idea of a gold standard and we will try and achieve it to the best of our abilities. So like even when we look at the early iteration of say Beauty World, there was a raw energy but we all tried to like, for example, create the stage, the lighting, the, even the costuming, um, was all done at a level with, that we could be proud of and we felt 
could travel anywhere. Okay, and that's interesting. So it looked like traveling was, in a way, not just uh, doing theatre, but also showing everybody that there was this growth yes. of uh, the English language theatre scene yes. in Singapore. Yeah, so like some of our early trips was like to Japan, to, of course to Malaysia and a few other countries to just sort of show that, hey, We've arrived at least at some level, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have another quote here from the program booklet. It says this, In February 1985, we put our money together to start this company. Mm. We still do not make much money from theatre. Those of us who have left our jobs still have to resort to other kinds of part-time work to subsidise our activity in the arts. Mm -hmm. Now, my question for you, Lucilla, is, well, today the roles in a theatre company are definitely more clear-cut than mm -hmm. they were back in the 80s, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. What was it like working part-time back then? And how do you see the roles as evolving over the years? I think perhaps in the early days, it was more collaborative. Mm -hmm. In the sense that even though I may be the stage manager, I may share my ideas with King Sen, the director, or the set designer, and we would work on some of the things. And also in a sense that I didn't feel I was uncreative or not creative, that mine was just a technical role. And so in a way, my involvement with production varied, and some of the work was creative, some of it was technical, mm -hmm. etc. I think now as it got more professionalized, we tend to have more fixed roles. So if I'm the set designer, I'm the set designer. Uh, in those days, you may be the set designer, but you may give input on the costumes. How will your costumes look like on your set? Actually, I think they still do talk about it, but you're still the set designer. I'm the lighting person and all that. So I only focus on this. Mm. So a bit more specialization. A, a lot more specialization. In 1987, that was when there was a full-time artistic director and administrator. And actually, the history behind that is that there was actually about two years of making do with part-time help and almost totally voluntary help. Yes. Right. So when the company employed its first full-time artistic director, that was Lim Xiao Chong, mm. and the administrator was Tio Sui Ling. This is who you were talking about. There yes. was also a part-time business manager. Dana Lam. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about what was the role of the business manager back then? It was to look for sponsorship. Mm. <laughs> and it was also to help with the financing because uh, managing the budgets, although Sui Ling did the bulk of it. But... Yeah, the business manager was to see how we could get, in a way, partly publicity. How can we sell tickets? How can we get bumps on seats? And how we can get people to sponsor us either in kind or with actual cash do donation. Was the company more successful with cash, raising cash or kind? More kind because I think in many, throughout the years, we did get, of course, certain cash donations. But if you know for production, sales of tickets will never cover cost. Mm. But what was also interesting was we had, for example, a paper company being our sponsors. So they helped with the posters, with our program booklets. And the couple that ran the company were actually very interesting because they were experts in paper. And they did not see themselves as creative people, but sometimes... I handled publicity, another person handled business when we went when I went full-time mm -hmm. with TheatreWorks. And we would describe like, oh, we want this, we want that. And then he'll say, okay, I will go back and look at my paper stock and I will tell you what. And then, okay, we will donate 
20 reams of this paper to you. So those were expensive paper and it really helped, you mm. know, because for us, the total look counted. We had hotel chains that sponsored rooms. So like when we did with the British Council, a whole program on teaching, we could invite people like Simon McBurney, etc., to come to Singapore to do workshops and they were housed at these hotels. We also had, at one time, one of the local companies who would sponsor costumes, things like that. Was that Tang Studio? Yes, that was Tang Studio. Yeah, remember in some of the collaterals, we would see the logo. Yes. Yes. So Tang Studio was one. For paper was? RJ Papers. RJ Papers. Wow. Mm. So these were the early sort of local sponsors that came in to help. And some of the other uh, sponsors would include some uh, catering companies who would do our opening parties and all that. So that was nice. Okay. Because we always got to uh, take home the leftovers. (laughs) (laughs) Or actually, most of the time, we scarf them down before the end of the night anyway. The usual mode of sponsorship in the 80s was for theatre companies to receive funding for commission plays or for one-off productions. But astoundingly, TheatreWorks managed to obtain funding to carry out not just one production or a commission, but actually an entire season of programs, as we said. For your 1989 to 1990 season, you received a total of $175,000 from three local organisations. So Tang Studio was one, Mm -hmm. Glexo Welcome, and Waterford Wedgwood Singapore. Yes. And I I also know that Tang's went on to offer continued support for the next three years. They said this, they stated this, we see TheatreWorks breaking new ground towards the development of a Singapore theatre we can call our own. Mm. Um, So many of them bought into that dream Mm -hmm. and vision of which we were very grateful. They understood what TheatreWorks was trying to do. Mm -hmm. They also knew actually what they were giving was just the tip of the iceberg. Because if you look at it, even in those days, 100 over 1,000 for a whole season. If you divide up with three plays, it's only about 30,000 a play. Um, you know, it, and we did in those days give a stipend to everybody, right, who worked our stagehands, our actors. So it took out a lot of that already takes up a lot of the budget. Yeah, that's very interesting. So the word stipend here is being used, I suppose, like an honorarium, yes. not the full pay, full but pay. something to cover your yes. transportation and your effort. And that obviously is a step towards the whole professionalizing of theatre here yes. in Singapore. Interestingly also that these uh, were local companies who seemed to share the dream of having some kind of theatre that had carried the Singapore identity. Yes. Yeah, a local flavour as yes. well. Yeah. talk a little bit about this idea of total theatre because obviously this would feed into the whole professional look of the shows that you were wanting to produce. Mm. I I read here that it's a holistic mentality and total theatre was the conception of theatre experience as larger than just the performer and the audience in a space. And in TheatreWorks News Volume 1 published in 1989... (laughs) Yes, all the archival materials coming out. You have actor and director Jeremiah Choi explaining that what total theatre means is that the experience of good theatre is not limited to what happens on stage or even the house, but also in the peripheral areas that the audience inhabits. Mm. Yeah. So like, for example, right, we've always felt 
that, well, theatre and education calls it enrolling. Enrolling means preparing the audience for what they are to expect. So it can be also like from the moment you're about to arrive at the theatre, mm-hmm. how you're greeted by the ushers, what you see in the foyer as you're walking towards your seat, the music you hear. So literally, your five senses, six even if you want to count, are totally stimulated if possible. So we wanted to always make sure that the audience went away like, wow, that was fantastic, mm. you know. And and they lived through that experience. So like in some of our productions, we break the fourth wall. Mm. We have actors coming from among the audience. We have certain things happening among the audience or the actors come off stage, etc. And I think many of our staging at one point, when we moved from Woodley Park to the top of Fort Canning Hill, many of it was outdoors. So like, for example, Theatre on the Hill, etc. It was a total production, a total theatre as you say it, because when you come in and then you go to different parts of Fort Canning Hill, in a way, the each production was like a site-specific work, mm. depending on where it's located. And even when you're walking from production to production, you might encounter installation or you might suddenly see a movement piece happening. So there's always something to see because we wanted theatre to come alive for the audience. Mm. Well, sounds like I'm preaching the converted. But, <laughs> but that was the excitement of doing something like that. Yeah, I had the chance to be involved in one of the smaller productions as well. And I suppose what you're saying really rings true because you don't want sort of, I'm walking from one space to another and nothing happens in between. But yes. rather, you feel that the experience is is total, it's immersive even. Yes. Yeah. That brings me to say one of the productions that perhaps fits this description and that was the 1990 production. It's stretched into 1991 though. It's Trojan Women. Yes. (laughs) That was, the venue was the quarry at Bukit Timah. Yes. It was an outdoor performance. (laughs) No, because I was acting in it. Yes, you were in the chorus. And you were also the stage manager. No, I was. No, you were not the stage manager. I wasn't the stage manager. Okay, you were in the chorus. So Don Westerhout was the stage manager. I see. Mm. So Lucilla, you Mm. were doing the publicity sometimes. Mm. You were doing the stage management sometimes. And you also acted. How did you balance it all? Well, acting was not my most favorite thing. But sometimes I love that play because when King Sen found the play, the version of the play, because Trojan Women is famous, but he found this version of the play and Mm. you're sharing it. So we were all like, okay, 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 let's do it, let's do it. And so what we found was at that time when we were rehearsing, it was during the monsoon season. So King Sen was said, lie down, kaplok. And then half of our bodies will be immersed in the mud. <laughs> and, you know, we're lying there and he's giving directions to, to Nora or to one of the other main actors. And all of us in the chorus are going like, faster la, faster la, it's so cold. And yeah, so I did all this because it was interesting. But I didn't act that much, but I did do parts that I really liked. So like many years later, I did a film called 12 Stories. And again, it was again a part that I liked. And I said, okay, this is for the history books. I'll just do it. But I guess for me, it's just that my interests varied. So sometimes knowing the season, I would say, hey, this one looks interesting. But because of time, I can't give that much commitment. So maybe I'll do lighting or sound. But like in this case, because it's school holidays, I can do Trojan women. Mm. So I did that. 
But it was fun running around that <laughs> the Bukit Timah quarry. And did you rehearse on site as well? Yes, all the time. All the time. So how many months did that take? I can't remember now, but it felt like three three months. Three months. Mm. I'm going to ask a very sensitive question, but not sensitive because of time. Mm. <laughs> what was the stipend back then? Gosh. For three months work. Definitely less than $1,000, I think. Okay. Yeah. Definitely less than $1,000. Okay. Okay, like my three months work on Beauty World for the first Beauty World was only, was about $1,000. Mm. Okay, so that gives us some sense of where we are mm. now in 2022 mm. with theatre more or less having moved into professionalization. Yeah. at least a large well, part there of are, it. There are, of course, people now who can, but I think many of them still have to do other work. They may do voiceovers, they may do uh, production work still, but it's still within theatre in mm. that sense. Some teach drama, some go to schools and be drama teachers there as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's a bit more professional mm. getting there. Okay. But I think some of the same old, same old problems are still there in terms of sponsorship and getting enough uh, work to be full-time, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about another quite famous, shall I say, uh, piece of work, M. Butterfly in 1990. Mm. You were the stage manager yes. together with Michelle Lim. Yes. The directors were Christine Lim and Christian Jit. Yes. This was 29th June to 6th July 1990 at the Victoria Theatre. Yeah, and that was when Ivan Heng just ate two popias for lunch and dinner to get himself so slim oh. because one of the gowns was loaned by Jacinta mm. and he wanted to get into that gown. So he went on a diet. So Why did she loan her gown? <laughs> How come it because was a, it was a really gorgeous, sexy black chiffony thing, you know. So how was it like being the stage manager for a production like this where there was, tell us, was it partial nudity or was it full nudity? There was full nudity. Full nudity. So mm. would you be able to walk us through the pre-production, the show itself and the post-production? It would be really helpful for our stage manager would-bes to listen to Okay. What they need to think about. Okay, at all times, we need to respect the process. We need to respect the performance as well. So during the rehearsals, there was actually no nudity, although in the script we knew at one point it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And there were two characters who actually stripped. One was Kitty Barkley and the other one was Ivan. And I remember we had rehearsed up to a point where... We were all comfortable with each other. And because, as you know, most plays are rehearsed in part. So we were already doing full runs. At one point, because we were doing full runs, Ivan said, heck it, I'm going to do it. So one night he just stripped. So what we did as the crew was to make sure his clothes were there for him. So when he went off stage, he could dress immediately. Now, when we were in theatre, that means we were bumping in, we were setting up the stage, setting up the wings. So one of the character actresses, uh, Kitty Barkley, she had a small part, but uh, a crucial part. So she does a strip 
And then the lights go off. She goes off stage into the wings. So I had stage hands standing by with a dressing gown for her. So she was protected because there were a lot of backstage people. Of course, it was quite new in those days. So everyone was peeping, peeping. But we tried to make sure that her modesty was protected. And she was grateful for that. And But she also was prepared. So that was good. Something like M Butterfly took us three months because in those days we were not Again, fully professional. So nowadays it takes six weeks. And for M Butterfly, we tried to get in the costumes, the um, props as early as possible so that the actors could work on them. So like, for example, yes, someone like Ivan had to change from one costume into that slinky black gown. And I think we had like 10 or 12 seconds to do that in. So I ha- I was the one who personally dressed him. So he came off and I just told him, don't move. So we stripped him and then he stepped into the black gown and we pulled it up and we zipped him eight seconds. And wow. he stepped into his high heels and he walked on stage without losing a bit, a beat. He was very professional. But uh, yeah, it's that sort of precision timing. We work at it to make sure the actors are not flustered. So like initially, he was very nervous. In the end, I had to tell him, Ivan, you got to stop panicking. You got to trust us. Then we can do our job. And then he said, okay. And then it was just easier because he was trying to help us, Mm. you know. And if you have someone struggling to undo his buttons and you're trying to do up his dress and you're both fighting at the same time. So, Mm. yeah. So, in the end, we got it down to eight seconds. I still remember that because we just had enough time for him to to even take a breather and walk on stage yeah. for his next scene. Yeah. You know? yeah. Wonderful. Some sort of collaboration and, and just trying oh, to yeah. put it all I think, together. I think the one thing you learn if you're a stage actor, and I think even in, in film, you realise your part is actually one small part in a whole bigger process. Mm-hmm. You need your stage uh, manager. You need your costume designer. You need your lighting person and your sound person. All this comes together to put the production, you know. So for me, what I really, what keeps me going, what gets me excited is that moment when the magic happens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, I think most often it's during the dress rehearsal when you just run and you suddenly said, okay, it's everything that you imagine it to be happens. And yeah, and it does. And all of us played a part to make that happen. So that would be going into the production, the sort of pre. Yes. And then during the show, Mm. what does the stage manager need to focus on? A lot of it is maintenance. So like, for example, we have to make sure, of course, that the costumes are kept pristine. Or in some cases, like in when we were doing one of the productions on Fort Canning Hill, every night, the stage manager at that time, Tan Lehun and myself, we had to wash the costumes overnight and dry them because they were the performers were on the hill and they would get all the grass stains and everything. So, so we it's maintaining costumes. It's also making sure that the props are, are maintained. So sometimes they're consumables. The actors eat something. So every day you got to make sure you have supplies of that and and general maintenance. So. So like, for example, in Beauty World, there was a turning carousel. So I have to check to make sure the mechanism works. works right. So it's a lot. It's basically that. But of course, if it's like by middle of the run, you should have gotten all this down pat. Sure. What happens post-production? 
Oh, it's crazy because before the last performance, you already start planning how to get out and how to tear down the... So you have to work backwards. So you have to imagine who needs to be there. So you see, you have one group that will be packing the costumes, packing the props, getting them ready to be transported. Then you also have to label like which are borrowed and go back to whoever, which need to be cleaned and all that before you can return. Then you also have to work with the carpenters and all that to tear down the set. Hmm. Are we keeping the set? Are we? If we need to keep the set for future run, then we need to preserve it and where do we store it? But if we are not, and then we are tearing it down, then I have to think of disposing the set and uh, all that sort of thing, yeah. Hmm. And all that would come at a big cost as well, right? Disposing, keeping, returning. Yes. And of course, finally, there is the balancing the books, right? So how much we spend, etc. So I have to settle the budget and give it to the finance person and say, okay, here are all my claims, here, da 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 da, and etc. And then, of course, before the sh- before we actually get the people in, we would have already told them what their stipend is. So then it's a matter of confirming that, okay, we had five stage hands and they worked the full run. So this is what we're paying. But this one came in only at the last moment. So we are paying this person that much, mm-hmm. etc. Was it difficult to find stage hands, crew, as we call them? I think it was a lot simpler in many ways. There were people who were interested and were willing to give their time. So we had a lot of students who were either like waiting to get to university or were on university break or maybe junior college students who were interested in theatre. Because I think in those days, there was not a LaSalle School of the Arts. Neither was there SOTA or whatever. So the only way you could learn is really hands-on doing a production. And actually, that's also how I saw my involvement in the different productions. It was for me to learn the different aspects. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Lucilla, earlier on you mentioned about the hill, the hill, the hill, and of course, Fort Canning yeah, Hill. Yeah, that's Fort Canning Hill that we associated many years with Theatre Works, at least for myself. Yeah. Now, Theatre Works' first home was in Woodley Park. 1985 to 1990. Mm-hmm. And this largest empty space in the two-bedroom house was a small concrete strip at the side of the house, which you mentioned. Mm. Rehearsals would be held there, usually p- till past midnight. And rehearsals typically only end when the police, summoned by their irate neighbours, roused. Not all the time. <laughs> <laughs> one, that one was legendary. The other yeah. one was one of the neighbours had a dog who seemed to dislike and would chase us down the hill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the hill at Woodley Park. Well, it's yeah, a little yeah, hill, right? Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's just a slope. Yeah. But sometimes he would chase us down. But that was just a little anecdote. But I think that a place was actually rented, so we had to pay rent for it. Sure. But by 1990, Theatre Works had built a strong enough repertoire, so it was actually invited by the National Parks Board to propose continuing their work at Fort Canning Park, right? Yes. The, the hill. And this new space included more rooms. Was it 200 packs capacity? Theatre? Yes. I seem to remember it was smaller, but 200 packs. It depends on, well, technically it's 200 packs. I think if you sit theatre style. Right. But Theatre Works never does that sort of production. So Mm. depending on the set, theatre in the round round or or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So you 
probably wouldn't get 200, maybe 150. Right. Mm. So this expanded space actually opened up new possibilities in programming? Yes, definitely, because with your own space, you could rehearse straight away in it. Uh, You could plan for it. And also at the same time, that I think was also how Theatre on the Hill came about because we had a good working relationship with M Park Sport. So that's when we started to dream like, okay, if we can... And I think at one time we invited five arts from KL to come. So Marin De Cruz and her dancers did something with big urns on top of the hill. And we had performances all over the hill as well. So mm. There was already, of course, collaboration with uh, five arts before, right? Because I think in 1988, there was a collaboration with them in Malaysia under Christian Jit as well as King Sen and mm. that was for the production of Three Children Yes, and that was actually performed here in Drama Centre Yes uh, Leo Poitin Yes yeah. and actually when I did Theatre and Education I did a version of that for schools as well in a way for a period there was a lot of collaborative work between Five Arts and uh, Theatre Works I think also it was a very rich period because Christian Jit's good friend was Ko Pao Kun. Mm. And these two men, I think, had a strong influence on the current directors because uh, Christian also did quite a bit of work. I think some work with The Necessary Stage. And and of course, Pao Kun ran his very famous workshops for directing, acting and stage management at one time mm-hmm. it, in his uh, little space in Upper Serangoon. Right, and those were the famous workshops that actually saw quite a lot of mentorship, right, of the current crop People like doctors. Ivan Heng, people like Ekachai, uh, Krong Tam, people like Harish, Sharma, Elvin Tan, King Sen. So, in terms of staging these shows, right, moving mm. from Woodley, which is a house, mm. to Fort Canning Hill, mm. yeah, how did the functions of stage and production management evolve from the time the company was working in sort of a terrace house situation to professional working venues and even outdoor locations? In a sense, the work is the same as in how you manage it because you still have to look after costumes, props, etc. But then you sort of approach it from, okay, now my stage is this tree. So I remember I had to walk with that time Tracy Howitt, who's now Tracy Pang. Pang, yeah, of and, Pandemonium. <laughs> yeah, and we walked around to say, okay, if Kayleen Tan and her group were to perform here, then we need to put a mattress out for Not a mattress, I think we need to put a platform for them so that they won't fall down, etc. So we needed to also dream in that space and we needed to work collaboratively with the artistic person working in that space to, to find out their needs. But in a sense, that is in a way another level of perhaps... Uh, more professional work because it wasn't just a matter of, oh, you tell me what you want, I just get it for you. You also get a chance to say, well, in this space, would you like to consider doing this or doing that instead? Mm. So Mm. that was how the work evolved because I think the exciting part now was there were more possibilities and we were also trying to find what could be done in that space that we had so it's a bit more challenging because, of course, you've got your normal theatre like Drama Centre in the past, but now almost anything in Fort Canning Park could be 
a space. Sure, sure. Yeah. To give a bit of context for our listeners as well, the Black Box at Fort Canning, this is Theatreworks' own venue, actually played host to Matt Forrest in 1991 and you were the sound designer, yep. Lucilla. There was also Madam Mao's Memories. Yes. That was in 1991, also at the Black Box. Mm-hmm. Trip to the South, 1991. Okay, yes. I see this 1991 season. <laughs> this Filipino, yes, because it was you. We were collaborating with a lot of Southeast Asian artists. Right. Okay. Tony Perez was the playwright for Trip to the South. Trip to the South. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit about 1990. There was a retrospective of Singapore plays. Yes. Theatreworks actually created the retrospective of Singapore plays. Seven plays written from the 1960s to the 1980s. And this established that there was like a collection, a canon uh, of Singapore's theatre, yeah. which has blossomed into the you know productive scene of today. That was King Sen's idea. It was, right? And yeah. this included David Henry Huang's And Butterfly. This is the one that... So there were many and then it culminated in this. Yes, because... That was actually how we opened the black box. We wanted something to say, ta-da. And here it was about looking back to look forward. We wanted to look at the shoulders on which we are standing. So let's look at the plays that had been written, Mimi Farm, etc. And let's rework them for the newer generation. So I remembered I was stage managing The Moon is Less Bright and King Sen wanted to recreate the feeling of being on a farm. Mm. So I filled the whole of Black Box with dirt. So I designed the set with him. So we created like a sandbox. We actually had wood that we found discarded on a farm in Singapore. We created a, a, a rectangular box and we filled that with soil. Mm. And then we implanted things from the farm in Singapore and then the actors acted on the soil. But we actually had wooden planks so that when they moved around that set, they were protected. Right. Yeah. That and sounds all, like a very sensory experience. It was. And there was, we, it just slips my mind, but we had a very old experience. Well, he was I think retired, but he was a, an experienced Chinese language actor and he played the patriarch in that play. I see, I see. Mm. This festival interestingly represented the beginning of Theatreworks' overall focus on the playwright in the 1990s because actually the Writers' Laboratory was yes. born in 1991. Yes. So as an arts manager, were you very involved with the this next phase that Theatreworks went into? In... Well, apart from stage managing and all that, with the Writer's Lab, I, the initial phrase phase of it, so people like Tony Perez would be invited to come to Singapore to run workshops and a few others. So my role was to also facilitate those workshops. And we had a lot of readings and a couple of other things that we did include, I think was that the beginning of the 24 hours playwriting? Hmm, okay, not that was much later. But it was that period of encouraging writing. Mm. Because obviously you can't have theatre. Well, we wanted to do local, local writing work. that That's we could right. be proud of. I remembered also one of my roles was reading those writings. <laughs> so sometimes Performed I, readings, right? Yeah, yeah, or just to read through and say, okay, I think this one got chance. We might consider putting this on or whatever. So it was a lot of that 
like, oh, this person has written this, let's see how and all that. Yeah. You know? So it was quite exciting. So the 24-hour playwriting competition that you mentioned was actually started in 1998. Ah, much yeah, later. Yeah, 1998. But I see where you're going because the trajectory started a lot earlier. Yes. To try and develop that Singapore yes. voice. Yes. So as you can see, there's always a long runway because things don't just spring up overnight. At that time, I think there was... I'm not sure whether it was... I think Shell was also sponsoring a playwriting competition, a short playwriting competition, because people like Teresa Tan and a few others had written plays and they and we also had produced some of those plays. Mm. But it came to a point when we were saying, okay, let's do something. And I think the Dr. Robin Loon, uh, <laughs> he may have given the idea, I cannot remember now, but the idea was to have a 24-hour playwriting competition. We will use an unusual setting we will have stimuli. Stimuli. And so there'll be someone directing the playwriting at the 24 hour session. So I remember that they were in a bumble, they were in an outdoor space. And I think at one point they were in IKEA and yeah, all that. They went to so the zoo. They went to the zoo, yeah. So they went on board a cruise ship. Cruise ship yeah. <laughs> all sorts of different things. And you could use the stimuli in any way you wanted. So mm. you didn't have to immediately Oh, okay, the scent of oranges filled the air. No, you didn't have to like immediately put in the stimuli. You could use it in any way you want. Yeah. And after that, what we did do was we would do a stage reading of the top few prizes, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you have had so many roles, whether right? as sound designer or stage mm-hmm. manager. You also directed early on in the well, show place. Along the way also I did. I think one of the theatre carnivals, uh, no, not the theatre carnival, but the subsequent, something like that, I did. I directed a play and then I acted in another play. What manager role do you enjoy the most out of all of these? <laughs> I think it's the overall production stage manager because that's when you see how everything comes together. So you see how the sound, how the lighting, how the costumes, how the acting impacts on the script and make it real for the audience. And I can see that really coming to pass in the 1992 Theatre Carnival on the Hill, mm. where you were the production manager. Mm. It was held at Fort Canning Park. Yes. And it, you said, I think it was a logical continuation of the retrospective that began in 1990. Yes. Yes, and the idea was, actually the idea for that was, it was going to be a tour of Fort Canning Hill. So we had three routes, the blue route, the red route, and the green route. So we actually had actors like Jeremiah Choi (laughs) being a tour guide. So at the beginning of the night, we divided our audience into three groups, and they would follow the tour guide, and they would be brought around. So we planned it because you see the spaces were small. So you can't have a large audience at one point. So we had to plan the route such that it did not matter which color you went. You would have seen everything, but you would have seen them at different times. For some of the performances, obviously they had to repeat it. So we had blocks of performances. We also had, I remember food. And because I remember having to be a barista, I had to learn how to make coffee among my numerous talents. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember we invited Eric Koo to do a mural. So he hung his mural down the front of our building. And so at every time, there was something to see for the audience. Right, right. Yeah, so that was how it was conceptualized. 
Fort Canning is actually a very um, big and interesting space with a very interesting atmosphere as well. So as production manager, for example, how would you have handled, say, the security issues? Because I heard that there were spooky encounters on Fort Canning Hill. Well, at that time, our technical manager... I feel like a story is coming, a ghost story. <laughs> Mr. Lim Yubing. So, he and the guys who go and patrol the area. So, we had sightings. Yes. At that time, somebody apparently walked into our office, a being. Mm. Mm. So, there were sightings on Fort Canning Hill. And we also realised there were groups of old men who like to hang around Fort Canning Hill. So, one day I decided, okay, I had enough. It's... 10.30, I want to go home. And I was walking off, out of the building and suddenly an old voice said, why are you going home very early uh, tonight? Then I was like, oh, uncle, hello, bye-bye. <laughs> uh, he obviously had been keeping track of my movements. So interesting. Yeah, we had a lot of interesting things happen on Fort Canning Hill. Did you establish who this person was? There were a group of old men. We knew that they hung around. Yu Bing, who was then our technical manager, was quite protective. So he always made sure and and yeah. So we just took, we were just sensible. Okay. So Lucilla, after taking on so many roles in different capacities of, you know, mm -hmm. arts management, I'm just going to give you a while to think about this, mm. okay? If you had a chance to write a <laughs> handbook, <laughs> what would be the top three tips? Take your time, okay? Take your mm -hmm. time to think about this. So it's a handbook, it's a fictitious handbook. Mm -hmm. What would be the top three tips? Okay, I think number one is support the vision. Because... The role for, I see the production stage manager or the management team is to support the artistic vision and to help realise it. And so, it is important to understand the vision. Second tip is respect your team. So, if you've got the right team and they're there to help you do the work, don't micromanage, don't second guess them, let them do the work. Trust, that's very important. Teamwork. And the most beautiful moment during a production is when I can sit back and everything's happening. And I can see my stage hands are where they should be. My dresses are standing there ready. And actually, I don't have to do anything except call the cues or something like that. It's just magic happens. So that's one. Number two, be prepared for anything. So... I was a girl guide, so, <laughs> <laughs> so that a motto is true. If anything will, uh, wrong will go wrong, it will go wrong. So I remember doing Trojan Women when we were all lying on the ground. I think one of my fellow actors said, I think there's a centipede. And I think that was Lydia Look or somebody anyway. And true enough, there was this ginormous centipede. And we were like, but we couldn't move. And the minute the rehearsal ended, we all went, ah! So, okay. But of course, then our stage manager had to come and remove that centipede. But okay, of course, that's something outside our ability to handle in a way. But I'm just saying, whatever can happen. So mm. you just sort of sometimes have to be prepared for and 
try and cope. So I remembered during the run, first run of Beauty World at World Trade Center, there was a power trip. And as a production manager, I can't do anything because the power trip is a power trip and that mm. is something that has to be dealt with by the technical people. And Jacinta goes off stage with bottles of green spot and started offering it to the audience to just entertain them and keep them going. And King Sen came forward to make a short announcement. So you just learn to cope. And to this day, I can't find those bottles of green spot anymore because I think those people took it home for souvenirs. <laughs> because you see, by then, green spot did not come in those bottles. I actually found the original, the old bottles. I actually went to the company and said, can you fill it up for me? And they did it. So, so influential. You asked them to fill it up okay, and they did no, it. No, 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 no. Not influential. <laughs> I just sounded so sad. and pathetic. Please, please, uncle, help me, help me. Okay, the fourth tip, free tip. Okay, free tip, free, yeah. Freebies. <laughs> must be thick skin to ask. Because ask and you shall be given. Because sometimes I was surprised in those days, you ask and people were quite kind. You explained to them, I'm trying to do this production. It's a school production. Well, not school production, but it's a low budget production. <laughs> I need this. I need that can. And then they'll say, ayah, tikla, 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 you know, whatever. So sometimes it's just about being thick skinned and asking. So like, for example, ah, the opening of Beauty World then, it was a little girl coming on stage to listen to a radio. And the voice on the radio, we wanted an old DJ. And we said it had to be Mike Ellery. And I found him and he was doing private work at that time in his studio. So I told him the whole thing. And he said, I just come to my studio, I'll do it for you. And he recorded it in one take. And he gave me the tape. And that was it. He did it as a favor, although I didn't know him, but I just I just called him. So you never know till you try, right? Mm, so, mm. so that was it. And I think it is still about being creative, being daring to ask and just knowing also who to ask. Mm. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I, I do think that that can be applied also to your relationships with sponsors. So I'm going to dig out the piece of data where you actually managed to get some unexpected sponsors for mixed signals. Ah. So the dates for mixed signals, 1989, 14th to 17th, and then 20th to 24th of June, 1989, at the World Trade Center Auditorium. This time, the director is Ivan Heng. Yes. The writer, Michael Chiang, yeah, yes. right? FOH was Michelle Lim. Mm -hmm. I'm paying tribute to all these early stalwarts of theatre. Oh, this she just aged us all. <laughs> <laughs> including myself. Okay. Fourth play collaboration between Theatre Works and Michael Chiang. Yes. Now, this is interesting. It was commissioned by the American Express. Yes. For the first time in Singapore's short theatrical history, an international corporation commissioned a local professional theatre company to produce an all-local work. Mm. And in the past, corporations in support of the arts actually looked outside of Singapore mm. and brought in reputable companies yes. from abroad, right? Yes. Like you would get the don't-know-what playhouse and then they'll do it at the Hilton or something like that. Or, well, you still have a bit of that like SRT will bring in a company from England or America to perform. But yes, this was the first time you get an international company commissioning a local group to do something. Mm. 
So Lucilla, on a parting shot, okay, this is just a parting shot. Are you happy with everything that you've achieved as an arts manager? Yes. I think I stopped at a time when, in a way, health-wise, it was hard for me to continue. And I had actually by then done full-time because I went into, I was in theatre works as the full-time publicity manager, and I was also helping to run the education program. Kingston was, of course, interested in more international type work. And that was a bit difficult for me. So anyway, but looking back at all the opportunities I got and all the things I got to do, I am very uh, grateful for all those experiences. And in a way, it's like all these skills are still there. You need to run an event they call it now events management, but you know what to do. You know what to look out for. Because about three years ago, I was asked by an organization to run the 150th anniversary. So I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. But in the end, I directed the, the concert, but I also had to be the stage manager for it because they didn't have the money to... Mm. But it was nice because it was about passing on the the knowledge, teaching younger people to do the work and all that. So that was nice. Mm. Thank you very much for being here with us today, Lucilla, and sharing all your stories. You're welcome. And also it's like interesting because you sometimes think, is there a point to all the things I've gone through? Is there any way of sharing this? So I thought when I was approached to do this, I thought, oh, okay, that's nice. At least... All my stories got a point to it. I can share absolutely and uh, talk about it. And it wasn't just a, a distant memory. So thanks for having me. Thank you. You've just come to the end of another episode of Backlogs, an arts management podcast series. If you'd like to learn more about any of the key events, people and institutions mentioned in this particular episode, head over to our website at backlogs.sg. That's B-A-C-K-L-O-G-U-E-S dot S-G to find further information pertaining to each episode's content. You may find them under show notes on the respective pages for each episode. For more resources with regard to arts management in Singapore, head to the resources page on the website. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at backlogs.sg which will be updated every time a new episode is released. Share your comments with us by tagging us at backlogs.sg or using the hashtag backlogs.sg. If you've enjoyed what you heard today and would like more, do support our fundraising efforts. We are raising funds to support the operational costs of manpower, equipment and resources in order to keep this podcast going. You may find the donation link on our website as well as our social media channels. This first podcast series is presented by Centre 42 and Singlet Station, together with researchers Dr. Ho Su Fen and Dr. Cheryl Julia Lee. It is supported by the National Arts Council Singapore. Thank you for listening.